Welcome to the November 1st episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Jeremiah 24 through 26 and Titus chapter 2, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Titus chapter 2, verse 1 says, But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching or healthy teaching. Um, So Paul is telling Titus that he was to proclaim, he was to herald, he was to speak out loud, he was to preach those things that would... um, that's consistent with sound teaching or healthy teaching. And what that means is, is one of the big things that Titus as a pastor was to do is make sure he knew what God's word said about everything, about everything that it spoke about. He was to know that, and then he was to proclaim things that were consistent with what God said in his word or what had been revealed to him, right? Because in the first century church, they did not have the New Testament. They didn't have the unpacking of who Jesus is and you know why he came and, and what he did on the cross and how that works in a believer's heart and what that means for a believer and how it is that they are to live. All of that stuff was yet to be unpacked or it was being unpacked as God's Holy Spirit was writing through Paul, and through John, and through Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and Jude, and James, and Peter, and everybody, all of the writers of the New Testament. And so Titus didn't have a New Testament, but he was hearing from the Apostle Paul, and he was familiar with the Old Testament. He was digging into it. And so Paul was saying, as he was moved by the Holy Spirit, Titus You better study the scriptures. You better know what I've proclaimed to you as truth. And when you stand up before your people, whether it's the preached word or whether it's you one-on-one with individuals within your congregation, you need to speak truth and proclaim things that are consistent with sound teaching. Um, there's, There's no... There's no room in a New Testament biblical knowledge for uh, men who would stand up and preach or men and women who would teach um, that is, that's fluffy stuff that doesn't have biblical substance to it. Um, people that get up are supposed to know the truth and they're supposed to cl- proclaim things that are consistent with that truth. And a verse that is just in the background of my mind is James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we are going to receive the stricter judgment. Um, there is a heavy weight on those that have the responsibility to teach. They better know their Bibles, and when they speak, it better be consistent with Scripture. Okay, so what, Ty, uh, what Paul does is now he's going to go into how it is that various people in the congregation are to behave. In verse 2, he talks about the older men. He says older men are to be self-controlled, self-controlled, right? They're not out of control. They're not undisciplined. They're, they're in control of themselves. 
They're worthy of respect, right? They're they're speaking and they're acting in a way that draws uh, that that brings respect to themselves, not causes others to disrespect them. They're sensible, you know. They're appropriate. I mean, they they're level-headed. They they're clear thinkers. They're sound in the faith. Sound in the faith. That means they know what the word of God says. They they know and, and faith can be a verb or it can be a noun. You know, faith can be a verb or a noun, and it's used both ways in the scripture. Faith as a verb can be trusting in Jesus or resting in the promises of God, trusting in the promises of God. That's it as a verb. Faith, though, is often used as a noun, and it talks about the body of doctrine, the body of truth. And so when it says sound in faith, that means they know what God's word has said, and they're doing it. Sound in faith. So the older men are also to be sound in love, love. And so this love is a love that is not the superficial uh, sort of feel love. Although if, if we love someone biblically, there needs to be that feeling. But it's more than that feeling. It is a consistent um a consistent love. It's a loyal love. It's a, it's a willingness to sacrifice. And so the older men are to have this kind of love, agape love, and endurance. That means they keep on going. They don't give up. So older men are to be characterized by that. Now, when it talks about the older women, um, it actually goes into a little bit more because this is verses 3 through 5. It says, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, so they're to be respectable as well, you know, in the way that they behave. They're to be reverent. They are to be uh, acting in a way that is consistent with godliness, uh, not slanderers. So that means they're not talking badly about others, not slaves to excess of drinking. And so, you know, one of the things I would point out is that the list that Paul gave to Titus for the older men is different than the list that. Paul gave to Titus for the older women. And so what are we to draw from this? Well, I think that one thing we can draw from it is that Paul had already said that, you know, the people of Crete were, the culture of Crete was was a really bad culture. They were liars. They were evil. They were, you know, self-consumed. I mean, it was it was a bad culture. T- Titus was working with some really difficult soil that he was spreading the seed of the gospel in. And so I believe that what he's talking about is certain things that are characteristic of men. And so Paul said, this is what the men should be like. This is the ideal that you strive for. And so whenever he's giving the characteristics of the older women, it seems as if he is saying things that is setting a different goal than what many of the women in the culture were doing at that time. So not slaves to excessive drinking. Well, it may have been that maybe the women more than the men were drunkards there on the island of Crete. He said they are to teach what is good. Okay, so now he's talking about what is positive, not just what they are not to do, but what they are supposed to do. They are to teach what is good. So they are to be influencers. Women are not to be passive. They are to be influencers. They are to teach what is good. They are to influence Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women. Okay, so that's their audience. They are to teach. Well, who do they teach? The young women. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands 
and to love their children. So Paul is saying, tell the older women that they have an opportunity to pass on a legacy of faith to those coming behind them. Tell them that they are to teach what is good, not what is uh, necessarily right, although it is right, but tell them to teach what is good, what's beneficial, what's helpful, what works for human flourishing, what will cultivate a thriving family. Tell them to teach the younger women how it is that they are to respond to their husbands and how it is that they are to work with their children, to love their husbands and love their children. Verse 5, teach them, you know, the older women are to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. And so you see that there was one group that Titus was not responsible to teach. He was responsible to teach the older older men, verse 2. He was responsible to teach the older women, verse 3. He was responsible to teach the young men, verse 6. But who was to teach the young women? It was the older women. That's who uh, Paul was telling Titus to get to teach the young women. Titus didn't know what it was like to be a young woman. He didn't know what it was like to, to be a mom to children and to be a wife to a husband. Titus had no clue because he's a man, right? And so Titus was to teach the older women and encourage the older women to pass on the legacy of faith to the young women. And this is a healthy thing in our churches whenever older women in our churches are passing on the faith to the younger women and teaching them how it is that they can cultivate their faith, how in their context, they can live out their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The pastor can do the best he can as he proclaims God's word about what it means to be a godly woman and a godly young woman, but ultimately he doesn't experientially know. He just knows from what he sees, but he doesn't experientially know. And so a healthy church is one where there is a wonderful women's ministry, whether it's a formal ministry or not. It's one where the older godly women are teaching the younger women how to be godly in every aspect of their life. Verse 5, teach the younger women, older women, teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Okay, so that's the same message for the older men. Tell them to be in control of themselves. Teach them to be pure. Teach them to be workers at home. Now, workers at home is not exclusive. It does not mean they cannot be workers outside the home. I think it's ideal if the wife, if the mom wants to be at home, then the husband, the dad, should do everything in his power to make that possible if that's what she desires. I know that whenever uh, Kim and I got married, uh, she was working outside of the home. My wife is someone that is doesn't have a lazy bone in her body, and she has to be doing something, even when she's listening to sermons. If you look over and watch her, she's doodling. It's not because she's not paying attention. She knows exactly what was said. Um, she's doodling because her brain is just so wired that she's capable of doing it more than one thing at a time. And so Kim, uh, is a worker outside of the home and, and she's been that, uh, she would go crazy if she stayed home. But whenever we had our oldest son, Zach, um, and, uh, you know, she had a job outside the home working for the Lexington Fayette County health department, uh, there in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, her heart was for her son. She had her first son, had her first child, and she got her boss to, to be okay with, with Kim bringing in Zach uh, because Kim had a desk job, had been promoted. But eventually, 
Um, Kim, we, Kim had a babysitter, but that just Kim's heart was being ripped out. And she told me, Matt, I want to stay home with my son. I want to raise him. I don't want somebody else to raise him. And so I did what I had to. There was a time when I was working three jobs, one full-time job, two part-time jobs so that Kim could stay home because we're convinced that if she wants to stay home to raise our children, then I'm going to do what I can to make that possible. Uh, if she wants to work outside the home, then she can do that and say, hey, pastor, where do you where do you get that? All I would tell you is read Proverbs 31. When you look at Proverbs 31, as King Lemuel is hearing from his mom, the kind of woman he is to look for, the, the Proverbs 31 woman, she's working at home, but she's also working outside the home, home selling her wares, you know, selling the things that she makes at home. Uh, she's out there in the marketplace. And so workers at home means that, yes, that is her turf. And in fact, God's wired women to where they have a deeper connectedness to their home than a guy does. A guy can trash his house and, you know, I'll get around to it one day and try to clean it up. It drives a woman crazy if her house is, is unkept because she's connected to that place. And so workers at home is just God saying, I know how I wired you, so I'm just going to command you. I'm just going to tell you to, to do, how, do what I've told you, do, do what I have wired you to do. And so workers at home means that a woman, uh, her place... Uh, of joy and happiness is to cultivate that safe place, that warm place, that loving and compassionate place that, that we call home. Uh, if she wants to stay there, if she wants to raise her children at home, then the husband needs to do everything he can to make it possible for her to do that. But I don't believe that when it says workers at home, that that means that she cannot also be a worker outside the home. It does make it more difficult and complex, but, uh, but the Bible does not forbid women from working outside the home. Okay, uh, the next one, she's to be kind, right? Kind, nice, she gives in order to bless. Uh, it says she's in submission uh, to her husband. Uh, it's using the plural, they, w young women, are in submission to their husbands. And, and all that means is, is they follow the loving leadership of their husbands. Honestly, if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, submitting to one another. And then the very next verse is, wives, submit to your husbands. But the verse right above it says, submitting to one another. And so the wife doesn't just submit to the husband, the husband submits to the wife. And what that means is, is they relate to each other in a way that they are not themselves uppermost in their affections, that they want to live their life for the good of their spouse. So the husband submits to the wife. She is the one he is thinking about. The wife submits to the husband. He is the one that she's thinking about. And if you want to know what the submission of the wife looks like, look at the very last verse of Ephesians chapter 5, because Paul summarizes it. He says, in summary, this is what I'm saying. The wife is to respect her husband. That's He changes the word. It's not submission. Now it's respect. The wife is to respect her husband, and the husband is to love his wife. And I shared this with our church Sunday night when I was talking about the roles of women in the life of the church. Uh, I was talking about that text, and I was to say, if you were to go out onto the street, not to believers, but even unbelievers, and say, husbands, what do you most emotionally want from your wife 
They would not say love. That They would want to be loved by their wives, but that's not the most important thing. Overwhelmingly, the husbands would say, I want her to respect me. I want her to look up to me. I want her to, I just want to feel so valued and so looked up to by my wife. I would love for her to just praise me every now and then and just let me know that she thinks so highly of me. So the husbands, generally, the highest emotional need, they want to be respected. If you were to ask 100 women, unbelieving women even, what it is that they most emotionally wanted from their husbands, They want to be respected, but that's not their top thing. They would say, I want to be loved. I want to be cherished. I want to be valued. I want him to stop. I don't want him to stop chasing after me. I want him to, I want to feel as if I'm worth him continuing to chase after. I want to be loved. And so whenever we hear women saying, I want to be loved, and men saying, I want to be respected, Well, when we look at Ephesians 5, particularly the last verse, that's what this is about. God's saying, wives, respect your husbands. Give him what he wants and needs. Husbands, love your wives. Give them what they want and need. And so whenever we talk about the submission of women, that's them following the loving leadership of their husband and in so doing, letting him know that I trust you and I respect you, and I will follow you. Now, if he is a wise husband, he will realize that uh, leadership does not mean a dictatorship. It means that he realizes, he better humbly realize that, uh, that God has given him a wife to complete him. So decisions that are made, he's a fool if he makes them by himself. He better be spending time with his wife and listening to her, listening to her mind, listening to her heart, and then make decisions that are good for her. And then she follows those decisions because ideally they're good for her, right? And so whenever we see in Titus chapter 2, verse 5, that the women are to be submissive to their husbands, just go back to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, where that topic is dealt with. This is not talking about women being squished. This is talking about creating an environment where women and men in, in, a, in their marriage can thrive and flourish. And so it says at the end of verse 5, so that God's word will not be slandered, right? And so men, older men are to act godly, older women are to act godly, so that when the outside world looks at us, they will not slander God's word. They will say, wow, those people are living according to that book, and look at how their marriages are thriving, and they genuinely love each other, something that we struggle to have in our marriage and in our relationships. And so it's all about living according to God's word so that we can flourish, so that the outside world sees us and honestly realizes that we've got something they want badly. In verse 6, he's to, uh, Titus is told to work with the young men in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Do you see self-control showing up over and over? Exactly. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. They're in charge of themselves. They are controlled. They are in control of themselves. Yes, they're depending upon the Holy Spirit. They're relying upon the Holy Spirit's power within them, but they're not passive, right? They've got their part. The Holy Spirit has his part. As far as their part, they're self-controlled. There's no area in their life that is out of control. They're self-controlled in everything. Verse 7, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. 
Okay, so this is interesting because what happens is, is in the section that Paul is writing to Titus saying, hey, teach the young men to be self-controlled. It's like Paul segues into Titus, I want you to be an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. It sounds as if Titus is a young man. That's why Paul just kind of segues into talking to him when he was talking about the young men. He said, Titus, you be self-controlled. You be an example of good works. You show people how to live. You show people how to live with integrity and dignity as you teach, right? Because it's not just what we say. People are looking to see, are we complying with what we say? If we are living differently than what we proclaim, even if what we say is true and truth If we are not living according to it, people are not going to listen to our word. That's why I love Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Ezra set his heart. He passionately persisted in doing three things. To study the law of the Lord, so he dug into God's word. To teach it. I mean, I'm sorry. No, that wasn't the order. To study the law of the Lord, because I'm going from memory here. To do it and then to teach it, right? So he's to study it in order for him to apply it to his own life, and then he taught it. That's because you need to know God's word in order for you to live it. And when you live it, then thirdly, when you teach it, people will take you seriously, or they will at least acknowledge that you are serious about it. Verse 8, your message is to be sound beyond reproach. That means, Titus, I want you to proclaim truth, and I want it to be truth. I don't want you to be lazy in your thinking. I want you to be someone who knows God's word so well that you are standing up to proclaim truth so that your message is beyond reproach, that if people are saying something bad about what you're saying, they have to make it up because they know that there are no chinks in your armor. You are speaking truth. Verse 8 again, your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed. Why are they ashamed? Because they have to make something up. They have to fabricate something because what you were saying is true and it makes sense and it's logical. So that your opponents will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. It's not just about the group inside the church. Those inside the church need to think about how are we being perceived outside the church. Why? Because those outside the church need the gospel. And if we're not living according to God's word, if we don't have it down right as far as what we believe and knowing that what we believe is in line with what the scripture teaches and we are living according to it, we're honest whenever we mess up and we mess up every single day, but we, as to the main of our life, are desiring to live consistent with what the Bible says, that we realize it's not just about us, it's about those that are not a part of us because they need the gospel. So we need to be preaching and teaching biblical truth, and we need to be living according to it. Verse 9, slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing. So they're to submit, they're to follow, they're to obey their masters in everything, and to be well-pleasing, not talking back. 
or stealing, but demonstrating other fa- utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God as Savior, uh, the teaching of God our Savior in everything. And so Paul is speaking to those in slavery. Now we are in America. Slavery, at least slavery of uh, the enslavement of those who were black, was ended with the Civil War, as the Civil War, as the effects of it were felt. There's still more slavery that's going on. There's sex slaves and that sort of thing that hides in the shadows of our country. Slavery is not over. But we are, since we are on this side of slavery, we see slavery as nothing but evil. And so when we read passages like this, we think, Paul, why weren't you telling them to get out of there? Why weren't you telling slaves to fight for their freedom? Why weren't you telling slaves to rise up? That's because the message of Christianity is such that it is not intended, it is not intended to create a mass horde to uprise and to take over a country. It's not intended to do that. It is individualistic. It takes one heart at a time, one heart at a time. And as one person gives their life to the Lord Jesus, and then as God's Holy Spirit in them directs them to the truth so that they come to understand what truth is, and as they understand what truth is, they live that truth out then they will share the faith with someone else, someone else will be saved, and eventually more and more people are saved, and people are realizing that slavery is wrong, and so slavery will die of natural causes. Now, am I saying that the Civil War was immoral? No, I'm not saying that. Slavery was wrong. It was horrible, horrific how people were treated. But what I'm saying is, is that was a different context than what was going on in the first century. There was nothing that was going on in the first century that would even remotely stop slavery. I mean, it was it was an enormous amount of people that were slaves in the first century. And so what Paul is doing is saying, okay, Christians, this is not about uprising. This is not about overthrowing institution because God over institutions because God has has given us the governments that we have, evil as some of them are, they could only be there if God allowed them to to be there. And so our job as Christians is to live out our faith in the context in which we find ourselves, right? And it's also about the gospel. It's about the gospel. And so what Paul was saying is, is that Christians should be willing to give up their rights. Now, this doesn't mean that we're pacifists. It doesn't mean that, certainly, uh, as I am informed by much study of God's word, I'm telling you that if someone breaks into our house and threatens harm to my wife, or to my son, you know, we've got three sons, but one is staying with us. I'm telling you that, uh, that they better have a weapon because I will pull out a persuader and make it clear to them that, uh, that they are not welcome. And they better be right with the Lord because if they do move toward threatening harm, um, they're going to be standing before Jesus pretty soon. And I believe that biblically, I've got the right to protect, and in fact, I have the responsibility to protect those that are under my authority. 
I'm the spiritual leader in this home, and I will do whatever I have to in order to protect what is mine and who is mine. Um, this is not braggadocia. This is what I believe. This is what I believe it means to be a biblical leader, a spiritual leader in my home. But in a context in the first century where you're in a, a secular culture and Christianity is like a, a fraction of 1%, there's nothing that's going to overthrow this, nothing that's going to stop this. And so the message of the gospel is live out your faith in the context in which you find yourself. And so Christians may be thinking, this is not right, this is not just. And Paul would say, you're right, it's not right, and it's not just but look at Jesus. It was not right, and it was not just that of what happened to him. And yet he submitted to that for a greater good. What was the greater good? He submitted to the injustice of being abused and put on the cross and killed so that the greater good is people will be able to rest in him, trust in him, and be saved. What's the greater good of someone who, in a culture where there is no opportunity to, to get freedom. What is, what is the greater good? The greater good is you live out your faith as a slave, enduring the injustice, and maybe, just maybe, your master, your lost master will see in you something, and maybe, just maybe, in that culture, in that context, God could use your witness to bring your master to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens in that culture? Well, there are, if you go to Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians chapter 6, Paul does give a message to masters. And his message was not, as much as we would want it to be, it was not free your slaves. It was not that. Because once again, you're living in a culture like that, and many slaves, they maybe did not have skills, and so if you freed them, well, then they're on the streets and they've got nothing. And so the master was to take care of their slaves and to help them and to bless them and to provide for them so that in that context, they're not being treated as slaves, you know? And I'm just telling you, that's why we have this message of the talk of slaves and uh, and masters is because this is the system in which they were in, and it was not an easy fix. And so Paul was telling them how they lived their faith out in that context. Well, let's move on to verse 11 uh, as we make our way to the last verse, verse 15. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. So the grace of God is manifested in the Son of God. That's Jesus. Jesus showed up. He's appeared, and it says, bringing salvation for all people. Now, this is not saying that all people are saved. It's not saying bringing salvation so that all people are saved. It doesn't say that. It says bringing salvation for all people. Now, the best way that we could um, restate this is bringing salvation, the possibility, the opportunity for all peoples in all countries to be saved. It doesn't mean that all people are saved. It means that people now have the opportunity to trust in Jesus regardless of what country, regardless of what socioeconomic status, regardless of their education. Salvation is offered to all. That's what Jesus did, bringing salvation for all people, 
Not all will embrace it. Not all people will be saved. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 7 said that relatively speaking, there are much fewer people that will spend eternity with the Lord in heaven than there are that are going to be going to a place called hell because broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And so salvation is available, but not all will trust. In fact, most will not. Verse 12, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. And so salvation is not just trusting in Jesus. There are those that think it's just trusting in Jesus and then just try to be a good person. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, realize you are a sinner, you're guilty, God it would be just to condemn you to a place called hell, but God loves you so much, he sent Jesus to pay the sin debt, your sin debt, if you will trust in him. And if you trust in him, verse 12, then pursue godliness and abandon, pursue godliness, deny godlessness, deny worldly lusts, live a sensible, righteous, and in a godly way in the present age. Don't just be a good person strive in godliness, strive to become more like Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. It's to receive the gift of eternal life and then follow Jesus. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he said, we are pursuing godliness. We are looking forward to the return of Jesus. The blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. But listen to how he describes Jesus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, God, that designation is always, like 99.9% of the time in the Bible, it is used to refer to God the Father. When it says God, it's referring to God the Father. But here it says our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this speaks of the Trinity, this speaks of the fact that, yes, God is a different person in the, the, the triune God, and there is one God manifested in three persons. God the Father is a different person than Jesus Christ. There's one God manifested in three persons, but yet in a very real way, they are while they are three persons and distinct in a very real way, they are one. And so it can be said that Jesus is God. I mean, even when Jesus had Philip look at him one time and Philip said, show us the Father and that's sufficient for us. And Jesus looked at him kind of perplexed and said, how can I have been with you so long and you don't know me? He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. And this is something we we, we believe, but we don't understand. How it is that God is one God yet manifested in three persons, and yet they are distinct and yet one. We don't understand it, but the Bible teaches that. And it's interesting, like I said, at the end of verse 13, where it says that Jesus Christ is God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us off of the slave block of sin, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. 
And so once again, we see in verse 14 that Jesus didn't save us just to take us to heaven. He saved us so that he could cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. That's what it means to be saved. We are saved by grace, trusting in Jesus, resting in him. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. But if we think that that is the only thing that God desires of us, then we have horribly misunderstood the gospel. The gospel is God is saving us so that he can cleanse us. He declares us righteous when we are saved and credits us with the righteousness of Jesus. But then he says, act like who you are in this life. And so we are to pursue our own righteousness, to grow in godliness, and to reject sin, to do the things that he desires for us to do. Verse 15, proclaim these things. Titus, you teach these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. That means, Titus, get a backbone. Don't just, don't just be mean. Don't be angry in the pulpit and rebuke people all the time. He said, encourage and rebuke. Encourage is when you see him do something good, encourage him to do more. When rebuke is when you see them in sin, then confront them with that sin. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Now, this doesn't mean that Titus is an authority figure. It doesn't mean that he's an authoritarian. It does mean that when he is speaking God's word and when a pastor and when a teacher is with their finger on God's word saying, this is not my opinion, this is what God is saying to us right now, then he is appealing to the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. A pastor needs to not tiptoe around truth. If he's giving his opinions, well, he can tiptoe if he wants. But if he is pointing to God's word and saying, church, this is what God's word has said. This is what it means. You need to apply it. You need to live it. I am not flawed. I am messed up as your pastor. I struggle as well. And so I'm preaching to myself. But this is what God's word has said. Are we going to do it? Are we going to believe it? Or are we not? He needs to speak with authority, right? Because it's not his words, it's God's words. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. And then he says this, let no one disregard you. If there is anyone that would say, oh, you know, I'm not listening to that. No, no, no. You need to listen up because this is not me. This is God that's speaking. Now, again, he's not a dictator and he's not a bully but he's someone that's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And if he genuinely loves people, then he wants to call people into conformity with what God's word says we are to believe and what God says we are how it is that we are to live. And so this is the authority, not just of a pastor, but of a Bible teacher. And that's not just someone in a position as a Bible teacher. You, as a Christian, if you are speaking into your family that there is sin, there's something going wrong, then speak from God's word authoritatively into that. If you are speaking with someone who's a friend and they're struggling in their marriage, then speak with authority, not your authority, but with your finger on God's word, share with them what God is saying, what God has said and is saying, and speak with the authority of God's word. That's what it means. And we do it because we love people. We're all going to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, and we don't want anyone, 
anyone to, to disappoint the Lord Jesus. We want everyone to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we speak God's word with confidence and authority, first to ourselves and then to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and uh, wow, we, we see that we really need to know your word. We can't just be passive and, and assume that we, we know it and we can't just rely upon our preacher to tell us what he thinks we need to hear because he may not be studying your word. We can't just rely upon our Bible study teacher because they may not be studying your word. They may get it wrong. We need to be in your word for ourselves, and we need to figure out what it is that you are saying, what it is that we are to believe, and how it is that we are to act so that your Holy Spirit has that sword that he can use to, to fight off sin in our hearts and in our mind, but also so that we, not, not that we can be a Pharisee or be the spiritual police looking for someone who's believing something wrong or doing something wrong, and then we're going to run to it and point our finger in their face. That's not what it's about, Lord. You didn't do that. Now, the only people you really ever got angry at was the self-righteous religious people, the Pharisees. Um, but Lord, help us to know your truth. Help us to be humbled by our own sinfulness, our own struggles. Help us, Lord, to be motivated by love for others, to speak your word into our lives first and then into the lives of others in humility and in love so that more and more people will understand what it is that you are saying, what it is that we are to believe, how it is that we are to act. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.